Welcome to Speaking of Service, the podcast that uncovers practical ways to grow service revenue, control costs, and improve customer satisfaction. If you're looking to innovate, gain a competitive edge, or just learn about the latest service trends, you've come to the right place. In today's episode, Chris Wolf, VP of Strategic Partnerships, sits down with John Carroll, CEO and founder of the Service Council, to discuss the state of market execution and adoption, whether predictive programs are meeting expectations, and how a proactive analytics journey can get back on track. John Carroll, it's great to see you again. Last time you were here, you were talking about preventative maintenance with my colleague, Chris McDonald. I invite you to call me Wolfie so you don't get us two Chris's confused. <laughs> so pleased to be here, Wolfie. Uh, really appreciated the first discussion with Chris around moving from preventive to predictive maintenance. And, and this discussion around remote service is something we're closely watching as a trend. So really pleased to be here. Now, if I recall, the folklore about the Service Council is that circa 2009, this group started as some like-minded folks on LinkedIn in a business group. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. Um, I incubated the Service Council as a LinkedIn business group back in 2009 after serving as an industry analyst at a technology analyst firm based out of Boston uh, for the previous five, five years. And one of my observations was that uh, there was an opportunity to do the inverse of what technology analyst firms do, which is analyze technology trends, but look at it from the industry practitioner's point of view. So the other elements to transformation, process, uh, people, data, culture, and of course, technology is a big part of that, uh, but we wanted to do research for the end user. So uh, really uh, emphasizing a, an industry practitioner-led approach, and it's, it's worked well for us, absolutely. Well, I understand now you're truly a global organization in more than 30 countries. That's right, yeah. We have 5,000 members worldwide. Uh, we have um, just a, a really wide, vast community, both from consumer-centric industries as well as uh, the business-to-business-centric industries, industrial manufacturing, high-tech, medical, and healthcare. Uh, and one of the things that we really reflect on positively is Having this breadth of audience allows us to do some cool things in terms of looking at the commonalities across these really different market segments and, and how is consumerization impacting business to business. So it's, it's been really fun to uh, cross-pollinate best practices. Well, as a consumer of all kinds of services, it used to be that I looked forward to having that human touch of somebody coming to an expert who could resolve whatever questions I had. But now I expect that those providers of service to me can diagnose things instantaneously, repair them remotely. Is that a trend that you're seeing your members wrestle with? Yeah, we are. Uh, we conducted a, a research project um, uh, in collaboration with PTC, thank you for your support, around the impact of operational uh, performance and the dependency on customer satisfaction. Those two elements, how do they depend upon one another? And when we asked the question, which channels do, does, your current, does your organization currently support customers on, 85% um, indicated email, followed by 64% social, 58% voice, live agent, technical support infrastructure, 53% uh, self-service. So we're seeing a lot more self-service portals, knowledge centers. And then behind all of that, 52% was field service. And there's a couple of drivers that are moving us to this remote structure and this remote emphasis. And I'd be happy to share a couple of those viewpoints. Now, I understand that you've 
aggregated a significant amount of deep primary research to come up with this. Talk to me a little bit about the research that led up to the report that we're going to hear about from you today. Yeah, we crowdsource. So uh, in terms of our research methodology, it's survey-driven, quantitative, um, and then we follow it up with qualitative analysis, interviews. So we like to quantitatively analyze the data. Um, we typically develop 25 to 30 question surveys, field them amongst an audience of uh, service leaders and executives. Not all the time. We have a technician-oriented project that we do annually called the Voice of the Field Service Engineer. But most of our research is geared towards the service executive, and we try to ask them, uh, what are the business challenges or, or, or opportunities they're trying to solve? And then we, we look at uh, building a maturity framework in terms of those that are doing it best. Um, and, and in this particular project, we asked, what are the drivers moving organizations to a remote infrastructure? And there's three critical um, uh, viewpoints that are really pushing us further down this path of remote service. One of which was obviously cost-oriented, inflationary times, right? And, and the cost of dispatch, especially when you think about the density of customers if they're distributed in nature, um, as well as the sophistication of the products that are being supported in the field if it's a multi-day visit, well, the cost of a dispatch is rising. It's the single greatest cost to a field service and service organization. Our research indicates that uh, it ranges in terms of cost of dispatch when you take into account fuel costs and labor costs and insurance and uniforms and tools and parts and all the good things that, are, that, that raise these costs. Anywhere from $250 to $2,500 plus in that multi-day, uh, uh, more complex uh, set of industries. So cost is the number one issue driving people towards remote. The second is people. Uh, people is a big critical element, one of which is the customer side. Customers are uh, really leaning on uh, channel preference changing to more of a self-service portal. So we've all had something broken in our personal lives and have gone to YouTube to try and self-serve, right? Um, and so consumerization is driving this increased pressure on service providers to more immediately support issues. Um, and to provide this remote infrastructure to support it in a, in a more immediate fashion. The other side of the people equation is there's a labor, labor shortage. If you look at the field technicians in a dispatch-centric scenario, not only will the aging demographic continue to retire at a fast pace, the Bureau of Labor Statistics suggests that those uh, work uh, employees that are above the age of 65 will double from 50 to 95 million from now into the year 2050. So the silver tsunami is gonna continue, silver tsunami is gonna continue, um, as well as the engagement crisis. Our Voice of the Field Service Engineer survey revealed that it's not just the aging demographic that's uh, moving on, it's the younger demographic. We have a lack of commitment at the earlier stage in the career uh, level. 65% uh, of uh, Gen X are leaving the workplace um, and not committed to the role of being a technician, and 67% of Gen Y. And, and so that comprises typically 75% of a workforce. And then the last element is this, this intelligence need, right? There's, there's a, we've heard the phrase uh, intelligence and information is the new oil, the new currency. Well, having connected products and being able to connect with customers, being able to connect with products is driving all sorts of value across the enterprise, whether it's uh, new product design or design for serviceability or empowerment in terms of knowledge and training moving forward. So there's a lot of critical factors that are driving organizations towards remote. Those are just some of them. 
Well, I'm chuckling when you talked about uniforms, and I'm imagining putting, <laughs> you know, a Gen Xer and a silver-haired person in the same uniform and seeing what that experience looks like. Right. You know, I think we all want to have predictability of service, and, and our brand depends on the experience that our customer has from those two extremes of service providers. Mm. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the human challenges of getting people to deliver an experience that's consistent with a brand and then how remote service can make that a little bit more predictable. Well, I'll tell you, there's a couple things that we're looking at closely, one of which is the labor shortage is drying a, a greater dependency on extended labor networks. Um, so we're seeing independence, channel partners, extended labor networks being leaned on more commonly. Um, and with that, um, you become further from the asset, further from the customer, and with that, there's a um, a disconnection to all the, the information that's required to be effective in supporting customers, whether it's customer history, asset history, um, uh, service manuals, knowledge, uh, all the sophisticated training methodology, methodologies that drive efficiencies up in terms of resolution. Uh, and obviously we know issue resolution is, is, is really important. So um, extended labor networks are being leaned on more commonly, and that's really uh, driving some complexity in terms of service delivery. Um, and that's obviously fueled by the labor shortage that we previously talked about. So that's just one of the critical elements that we're looking at really closely. So by extended labor networks, you're talking about aggregators who can get the freelancer or the independent service person you know, into some sort of a network where a provider of service could tap into that labor pool. Yeah, so in the, in the uh, example of an uh, asset-centric OEM, right, so uh, a product manufacturer, they have W-2 or full-time employees that are supporting the customers in that field service or remote infrastructure setting. Um, but when and where they can't support the customers and have a labor capacity challenge, they're leaning on independent extended labor networks, channel partners, dealers, etc., et to support those customers uh, when and where they can't. Uh, and so uh, that dependency um, is, is driving up some risk associated with that service delivery in terms of that brand experience. And so we hear a lot about the creation of uh, a technician or an agent agnostic infrastructure. So how can we uh, emphasize uh, the inputs and outputs in terms of data and intelligence that can empower any technician, any agent, whether it's full-time or extended labor network, at that moment of truth? Um, and so we're seeing a lot more of an emphasis of building that information platform. Now, could that person also be an employee of the company who's using the machine? Could be. Yeah, yeah. We're seeing uh, an evolution in terms of, you know, to my earlier point about self-service, we see a lot of internal infrastructure being created to um, support those asset uptime uh, requirements that are needed at the end customer. Um, you think about some of the criticality of assets, whether it's life-threatening in the medical and healthcare space, or if it's um, organizational threatening, threatening in terms of revenue, um, where, where the, the importance of asset performance and uptime and, is so critical nowadays. Um, and if a, if a heart monitor goes down in the middle of a surgery, that's typically not a good thing. <laughs> Gosh. So there, you know, many of the companies that we serve at PTC have been our clients for decades. They have a tremendous set of pillars that have been set up in order to engineer, support, and sustain their end customers using their machines. What are the critical pillars that you're seeing innovative companies embrace, regardless of how mature they are, 
to be able to enable this brand experience and better remote service? You know, there's um, a, a couple elements, one of which is the importance of having connected assets. Um, it starts with having connected assets through IoT infrastructure, um, and, and the data and intelligence that can be derived from that, that information gleaned from that asset performance uh, monitoring is really critical in signaling predictive maintenance alerts, triggering dispatch scenarios where we're going out and preventively solving issues. That was our first podcast together. Preventively solving issues before they happen, right? So understanding when a failure is gonna happen before it happens. So IoT and connected devices is one critical element. The, the other is, is building a, a report infrastructure, a report, uh, excuse me, a remote support infrastructure by way of that intelligence platform that I was talking about. So how can you empower through the information access that's required in order to solve those customer-related issues to make sure that if you can't remotely resolve something, at least you're accurately triaging and diagnosing it. Because in a field service-centric scenario, when you can't remotely resolve something, uh, we're still seeing really high uh, levels of repeat visits, no fault found, um, issues where uh, the empowerment in the field is driving uh, lower efficiencies in terms of issue resolution, and that's obviously driving up costs related to service delivery. Now, when we had spoken in the past, you told us about how I think of that no fault found visit to a customer location. I also equate that with, I don't know what's going on here. I need to phone a friend yeah. and figure out how to resolve this. How is the digital thread enabled with augmented reality helping some of those no fault found tickets be resolved on that first visit? Yeah, it's, it, it's so critical, um, really critical. We're, we're looking at technology investment priorities and augmented reality is the number three investment behind BI and in intelligence and field service management platforms, shockingly enough. But I think the trend there is that we're seeing a consolidation of disparate systems because of those pockets that exist where the data and information is falling into those pockets. Um, and, and one of the things that we've been following is this, you know, modernization is not transformation. It's not digital transformation. So we've seen a lot of reactive modernization efforts but what we're seeing now is this whole threading of all these sophisticated technologies together so that the information can flow to and from the customer, to and from the front, uh, front line to ensure uh, the empowerment is happening in that moment of truth. So um, there is some adoption challenges still that remain. 81% of technicians that responded to our Voice of the Field Service Engineer survey still phone a friend when they get stuck in the field. Um, but one of the, the greatest inhibitors to their success, one of the least enjoyable parts of their day, is the time that they spend finding information. That was the number two answer choice in terms of what they don't like about their day-to-day -day job, right behind paperwork and administrative tasks. So it still remains. Uh, well, I can certainly appreciate the, you know, the dislike of paperwork. Nobody likes that. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting when you talk about consolidation of complex systems. When I joined PTC, I expected to see a huge jump in our IoT and augmented reality sales, mm. uh, unfortunately, as a result of COVID. But yeah. we've seen, anticipating that, a real renaissance in, in our Creo and Windchill PLM sure. sales as our clients look to get their digital house in order in order to flow that data down in a, in a contextual and useful way to the technicians. Are you finding that getting that digital house in order is an important criteria? Would that ease? 
some of the rejection that you may get from the field? Ab absolutely. There's no doubt about it. The information that can be gathered from the front line in terms of that service experience has so much value, not only from the point of view of becoming more effective moving forward when you go out to a similar instance, but also in terms of product design, design for serviceability, um, the, the process and procedures before rolling out a product so that your team is prepared to support those products. Absolutely, and, and, and we're hearing a lot more of an emphasis on involving frontline technicians and engineers in the process of the digital transformation. So it's not this notion of it being the new flavor of the month. We've got a new gadget, a new gadget that we're rolling out to you to, to make you better. Um, we're, we're involving you in the process so that your input is received and, and you're part of this uh, solution. So we're seeing a big emphasis of that. What are your most innovative members doing to capture the expertise of their really knowledgeable people out in the field and make that available to the next generation of field worker and also to send their learnings back up to the engineers who are designing the systems in the first place? Yeah, they're, they're using uh, augmented reality uh, primarily speaking. Uh, uh, quite honestly, we did a research project on the state of the market of augmented reality and where most service executives went into the project with this notion of, oh, we're going to drive greater uh, effectiveness in the field because of all the supplemental information and knowledge we're going to give to our technicians. They went out of it with it making a greater impact in terms of training and knowledge capture. Um, and so augmented reality is a really critical leg to the stool in terms of capturing the knowledge. Obviously, knowledge management portals and the ability to uh, take that knowledge in and then assess and assimilate it and take it from an unstructured uh, setting to a structured setting, that's a big element of it. Um, and, and so knowledge management is another big uh, critical stool, if you, a leg to the stool, if you will. Um, and so those two things together are really driving, uh, they're, they're prerequisites if you're thinking about uh, a knowledge information platform, um, the, the knowledge management side as well as the augmented reality side. Well, I suppose nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to invest in a knowledge management platform. <laughs> but they do say I could benefit if I could get the knowledge from the field back up to engineering and provide that engineering information down to the field. That's a massive amount of investment. It's a cultural change. What does your research show the best companies are doing to even get started? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things is uh, don't go to the solution first. You really need to diagnose the problem um, and, and slow your roll, if you will, in terms of figuring out what are the symptoms that your organization is, is experiencing. And especially if you're a larger enterprise you know, class organization, there are probably many technologies that exist across your enterprise. And so before you think about the solution, think about internally what's already existing and how do you consolidate and, and look at those resources that perhaps might already exist. The second is involvement of your frontline in the process of the transformation. I just mentioned that previously. It couldn't be more important. They're closest to the customer. Um, they're gathering data and intelligence on what they're experiencing when they've got their hands on the product or the, the, the asset itself. And so their level of involvement is, is critical. Um, behind that, I would suggest that you've got to communicate often, right? We, if you think about change management, you've got to understand and appreciate that those that are going to be embracing this platform need to understand what its impact is going to be and you need to communicate often where you are in that journey. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing I would say is, you know, think big, start small, right? So we've heard a lot about that over the years. Um, 
we're seeing a little bit of a removal from that. Um, think big, go big is what we're hearing lately, um, because there's just a, a tremendous opportunity to consolidate and to advance your efforts moving forward. We see a lot more of a longer-term play in terms of digital transformation, not just that reactive play that we saw when, obviously, COVID hit us. So. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you talk about think big, act small, et cetera. We found many of our clients looking to identify a rewarding uh, fix that they can implement and then bringing their whole organization that giant step forward as opposed to sending one lone scout factory out farther right. along the horizon and trying to get everybody to catch up. That's right. Um, you know, what are the pillars of a good strategy that you're seeing your, your members lay in, who's advising them on creating that strategy, that vision, and then seeing that through to fruition? I'm very close to our partner community here, so I'm interested to hear, you know, from the advisory and the external influences, who are your members turning to for that support? Well, of course, they're turning to us, Wolfie. <laughs> <laughs> now, beyond us, obviously, industry analyst firms can be really, really helpful in terms of aggregating the information to empower decisions, whether it's understanding of the technology landscape and those providers that have depth in certain industries. Um, you've got many vendor ranking uh, research efforts that are produced, whether it's IDC or Gartner or Forrester. Um, those can be really critical to understanding the landscape of providers and, and where they have depth in terms of solution functionality, but also industry uh, depth. Uh, so we're hearing, uh, obviously, the analyst firms continue to be uh, relied upon. We are seeing much greater reliance on member-to-member -member interaction, right? So what is, the tri what is the tribal knowledge that has been garnered by succeeding or failing? So uh, every day, I, I can't tell you how many member-to-member -member facilitated discussions that we're leading where uh, another member is asking another member in an unrelated industry, how did you solve this problem? Uh, we understand you're doing great things in this area of your business. We're looking to address it. Can we have a conversation of those success scenarios, but also the pitfall and the, uh, avoidance scenarios that we should avoid as we go and embark on our journey? So a lot of member-to-member, peer-to-peer collaboration is happening, and, and uh, we're pretty proud to be right in the center of that. So, Well, it's interesting to see companies in one industry looking to another industry for best practices and maybe innovation that they can bring. How does, how does one become a member? I, I haven't asked you to give an infomercial for your organization, but <laughs> if I were to give you that chance, tell me about membership and what's involved. Yeah, you can visit us at our, at our website. We offer individual all the way up to corporate and enterprise. So it's multi-tenant uh, or individual. Uh, we welcome all, all parties to come and join. Um, and one of the things that we do is we organize our community by persona. So, you know, uh, we have um, eight to ten research tracks, depending on how you slice it on a daily basis, ranging from service leadership and strategy all the way down to all the cabinet members that comprise a service executive's team, whether it's parts or IT or intelligence and data or workforce and talent or any other area of the business. So really organized to the, to the individual. Um, and so uh, each of those cabinet members can find value in being associated. Are you finding non-traditional members coming in? I know there are so many makers of technology mm -hmm. who are looking to deliver their solutions as a service because their customers are looking for a shared risk, shared gain environment. Absolutely. How's that shaping up in your membership? 
as a service is a, is a very hot topic. Outcome-based services, whatever you re refer to, to it as. Um, really, really critical. Um, it takes a lot to get there. It takes a, a lot of maturity in terms of process, culture, uh, IT infrastructure, but the results are so proven. Uh, our research suggests that those that are achieving best in class across critical KPIs such as customer satisfaction, uh, operational cost metrics, revenue performance, those that are achieving best-in-class metrics are those that are uh, able to uh, achieve that outcome-based methodology, right? And, and so, uh, but it takes a lot. It takes uh, a, a really well-foundationed IT infrastructure, uh, a really well-thought-out um, integration strategy in terms of all these different modernization efforts woven together into a digital thread. Um, so there's a lot that's needed. It also takes leadership and the recognition that service is important and critical. It is a boardroom discussion and the service leader should be at the C-suite table. Um, we asked uh, in the uh, research effort we commissioned um, around uh, the presence of service leadership, what is the impact on CSAT performance as well as operational performance? Those that have executive leadership in the service and customer support function achieve a 16.5% greater net promoter score, and they're 2.3 times more likely to see a, an increase in customer satisfaction with the presence of customer satisfaction, uh, a team as well as a service leadership um, uh, at the top of that organization. So recognition is, is the first step to recovery, <laughs> as is in many cases. <laughs> I think R&D has traditionally been king of the hill when it comes to creating new products, but how are you seeing the R&D function tap into the service function to make products that are able to be delivered with zero defects day one, but are able to sustain that level of, of expectation over the life cycle of a machine? We see a lot of focus on this, quite honestly. Um, we're gonna have um, a workshop upcoming at our conference around uh, new product rollout and, and what are the best steps to doing so and what's the importance of getting case information back into the enterprise to, to drive a, a greater design for serviceability uh, methodology moving forward. So um, it, it's, gr it's very important. We see an emphasis of it and we see uh, a greater collaboration between service and other uh, lines of business personnel, including R&D. Uh, and that's one of the, the big areas of focus that we're seeing right now. We're also seeing supply chain collaborate more so with uh, obviously R&D and, and service as well in terms of availability of parts, um, the, the whole circular economy side of things. How can we take assets back into the enterprise and recondition, remanufacture and reproduce and redistribute? Um, so we're seeing a lot of focus on that, especially with supply chains that continue to be lagged. So um, lots of cool things happening in that regard. How about the green economy? Uh, we've spoken about customer interest and consumerization trends. We've talked about taking cost out of delivering service through remote, but this has got to be a fantastic enabler of ESG. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sustainability continues to rise uh, and, and really quickly. ESG initiatives... Um, I would say is going to be probably one of the top three critical service leader uh, measurement criteria for the next coming year. Um, and for enterprises, more broadly speaking, um, I think it's one of the greatest challenges of our, of our era, if you will. So uh, we're seeing a lot of focus on the circular economy, as I talked about. So um, how can we take uh, product back into the enterprise and recondition, remanufacture, redistribute? 
Um, we're seeing a lot of focus on e-waste and the importance of uh, effective processes there. We're seeing the importance of um, who do you work with in terms of your supplier network, right? Are, do they have ESG initiatives that are similar and in line with yours, right? So that extended supply, supplier network, um, if they're not doing things that line up with the way that you're doing things and, and it all points towards supporting a green economy, then you know we're not doing the right thing altogether. So decision in terms of supplier network partnerships, uh, decision in terms of how e-waste happens, decision in terms of uh, reproduction of, of products and assets. And then lastly, if you look at the 17 published uh, UN sustainability goals, it's not just all the things that I talked about it, in terms of energy consumption and usage, it's also diversity, right? The importance of uh, a more helping diverse audiences uh, rise up to the top and uh, be given the same opportunities as um, other populations, so yeah. John, I'd love to give you the final minutes of our conversation today to just, what final words would you have for your listeners and members today? Yeah, I think um, we just talked about sustainability and, and remote service, remote support is uh, a, a critical contributor to uh, an ESG initiative, right? In terms of dispatch avoidance, cost reduction, and all the waste that happens with, you know, dispatch-centric scenario where a technician is rolling a truck and fuel utilization is happening and, and how effective are you in that process. So I would just, you know, link it to our earlier conversation around sustainability initiatives. Uh, remote is, is critical in terms of any ESG initiative. I would, I would frame three things. I'd go back and circle back to the three areas that I had kicked off our discussion with. Uh, remote is going to drive uh, your cost down. Right, so dispatch uh, uh, scenarios are on the rise in terms of costs. Inflation is driving up. Dispatch uh, costs from anywhere from $250 to $2,500 plus. When you talk about you know less dense populations of customers where they're more dispersed, as well as uh, more sophistication in terms of the asset being supported, and that requires a multi-day visit. So if costs are, are, are a big critical concern for you, which they are for everyone, then remote is a, a big area that can help you solve that. On the people side of things, it's almost a mandate to look at remote, right? It's a, it's a pathway for technicians to stay committed to the career of service. Um, it is a pathway for our retiring labor to uh, be a resource uh, to our more emerging workforce. That doesn't necessarily possess the same skill sets and education and, and empirical knowledge that our more senior technicians and engineers have. So um, we're seeing um, a, a workforce shortage, and, and so the remote infrastructure, the remote support strategy can really help uh, solve the, the people and labor challenge. And oh, by the way, customers are demanding it. You have to support it because they're looking for more immediate support and they're looking for a, a consumer-like experience, right? How, how can we quickly resolve this? How can we do it without waiting for someone? Um, and, um, and so that's a, another critical element, the customer. And then the other side of it, I would say, just wrapping up, is the importance of intelligence. If, if you believe that intelligence empowers your enterprise beyond service delivery and can empower product design and serviceability and and training and all the good things that are critical to your organization in terms of people development, then this uh, is, is, is another critical element to a remote strategy. So uh, those would be my closing thoughts, Wolfie. I hope that uh, sort of wraps us, uh, wraps us up here in a nice uh, setting here. 
Well, you've wrapped it up nicely. I, you know, I came to this thinking service was part of the business. I'm leaving believing that service is the business. So thank you for that. Well, I'd love to continue this conversation maybe in a future podcast. PTC has appointed our own Catherine Kinnicker to look after sustainability and be able to provide reporting on that from a PTC perspective. One of our partners was talking to me about using ThingWorks and developing a, a solution to help our customers publish their own sustainability reports. Super hot topic that we're seeing. I just want to thank you so much for coming in. You know, we've spoken about remote service being the new standard. You've helped us understand the customer motivation, the cost motivation, the connection to the brand in terms of consistency of service, and now talking about sustainability. That'd be a great jumping off point for the next time we meet. Thanks for being with us, John. It's been terrific. Wolfie, I've enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much to PTC. Thanks for listening to the Speaking of Service podcast, brought to you by PTC. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or review. And be sure to check out other episodes to hear new perspectives on improving life for aftermarket professionals, service teams, and the customers they support. If you have a topic of interest or want to provide feedback, email us at speakingofservice at ptc.com or visit us at ptc.com slash speakingofservice.